The first nuclear explosion on the planet took place before Hiroshima on July 16, 1945, at the Trinity test site in New Mexico. When people hear about Trinity, it's usually the tale of a miraculous engineering feat that went off without a hitch in an area where nobody lived. So when you talk to two filmmakers who are doing a documentary about Trinity, among other places, and they tell you... Not all the plutonium in the bomb fissioned. Um, It didn't explode and it was distributed throughout the atmosphere. And it's unknown where that plutonium went. And it was like several pounds of plutonium. Yeah, that went unfissioned. It just went up into the atmosphere and rained back down over a large tract of land in New Mexico, possibly in Texas. They're not really sure. Well, that sounds like more than a little hitch. So when you hear about undisclosed plutonium contamination like that, you can't help but think, what else aren't they telling us? And that's when you realize that you are in the seat that we all share. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, we talk with two young filmmakers who are turning their talents and attention to people in communities in the western United States who have been deeply harmed by nuclear actions and nuclear lies. Taylor Dunn and Eric Stewart talk about their film, Off Country, which focuses on the Trinity site in Alamogordo, New Mexico, the White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico, and Rocky Flats in Colorado. We'll also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, activist shoutouts, and more honest nuclear information than came up for a vote at the House of Representatives last week. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, May 15, 2018, And here is the week's nuclear news from a different perspective. Starting out in the U.S., the House of Representatives last week approved an election year bill to revive the mothballed nuclear waste dump at Nevada's Yucca Mountain. This despite opposition of lawmakers from its home state and sane people around the country. After $98 billion worth of work, The Yucca Mountain site was found to be scientifically dicey for storing some 130 million metric tons of radioactive waste and spent nuclear fuel. The site would be vulnerable to earthquakes and other natural forces that no one can predict, and its location over porous soil threatens the drinking water in an aquifer underneath it, which is pumped directly to Los Angeles and other places as drinking water. 
There's also a long-standing argument over how long yucca should be required to safely store nuclear waste. During the administration of George W. Bush, a federal judge ruled that the site must safely store waste for a million years, overturning the administration's assertion that 10,000 years was long enough. In 2009, President Obama's Energy Secretary, Stephen Chu, pulled the plug on Yucca. In the interim, 80,000 metric tons of spent nuclear fuel has piled up around the country, and the government has been forced to pay plant operators millions of dollars each year for breach of contract. Money operators are not required to, and in many cases don't, spend on storage. Heck, It's annual windfall profits. The new legislative initiative that passed the House last week would direct the U.S. Energy Department to continue a licensing process for Yucca Mountain while also moving forward with a separate plan for so-called temporary storage at a site in New Mexico or West Texas, which are not wanted and are being staunchly fought against by the communities there. The House approved the bill 340 to 72, including my representative, mine. The measure now goes to the Senate, where Nevada's two senators have vowed to block it. One of them, Senator Dean Heller, spoke on the floor of the Senate shortly after the House vote. And here's what he had to say. Mr. President, I rise today to reiterate my strong opposition to the House of Representatives' effort to restart licensing activities at Yucca Mountain, and in particular the Nuclear Waste Policy Amendment Act, which passed the House just a few hours ago. This bill, which is complete and total waste of taxpayer dollars, is dead on arrival in the United States Senate. Not only will I place a hold on the bill now that it has passed the House, I will also object to the motion to proceed to the bill. And this vote today proves my point, that I am the only person in Washington, D.C., standing between a pristine, beautiful Nevada or a Nevada dripping with nuclear waste. Just as I've said in the past, I'll continue to serve as a roadblock to every effort to make Nevada our nation's nuclear waste dump. Despite the House of Representatives' repeated attempts to revive the failed project, I've been able to ensure that not a single dollar has been appropriated to restart licensing activities at Yucca Mountain. This vote is nothing but a failed exercise because as long as I'm in the Senate, Yucca Mountain is dead. Senator Dean Heller of Nevada, who is up for re-election this year. Back in 2011, shortly after the Fukushima nuclear disaster began, The nuclear industry started a campaign in the United States with the cute question, is there life after 60? And last week, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission staff gave the answer, yes, it will now be allowable for nuclear reactors that have already been extended to 60 years of operation to apply for and receive 20-year extensions to 80 years. When commercial nuclear power was getting its start in the 1960s and 70s, industry and regulators alike stated unequivocally that reactors were designed only to operate for 40 years, and this for safety reasons. But now they're telling another story, insisting that the units were built with no inherent lifespan and can run for up to a century because, hey, money! 
As part of a year-long investigation of aging issues at the nation's nuclear power plants, the Associated Press found that the relicensing process often lacks fully independent safety reviews. Records show that paperwork of the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission sometimes matches word-for-word the language used in a plant operator's application. There was very little on-site inspection and verification, and under relicensing rules, tighter standards are not required to compensate for decades of wear and tear. This decision is like Viagra for nukes. Keep them up, keep them running. Last week, we reported that Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico was granted an increase of 10 times the amount of plutonium they currently work with in order to build at least 50 more plutonium pits per year for nuclear weapons. But NukeWatch has come out with an analysis of what is not in this plutonium pit production decision. There's no explanation as to why the Department of Defense requires at least 80 pits per year and no justification to the American taxpayer why the enormous expense of expanded production is necessary. In 2006, independent experts found that pits last at least a century. Plutonium pits in the existing stockpile now average around 40 years old. And yes, there is life after 40 at least as far as plutonium pits are concerned. And there are up to 15,000 excess pits already stored at the Pantex plant near Amarillo, Texas, with up to another 5,000 in strategic reserve. There's much more, all of it infuriating, and we will link to it on the website, nuclearhotseat.com, under this episode, number 360. In Japan, on Wednesday, May 9th, the Kansai Electric Power Company restarted a reactor at the Ohi plant in Fukui Prefecture, central Japan. This is the eighth nuclear reactor restart in that country since the Fukushima nuclear disaster began on March 11, 2011. Two months ago, the utility reactivated the number three reactor at that same facility. Two more reactors are running at its Takahama plant, about 13 kilometers, or 10 miles, west of Ohi. Although they all pass the government's new regulations, attention is now focused on the threat of multiple accidents at these plants in the event of an earthquake and or tsunami. This summer, the government plans to hold its first drill based on a scenario that accidents have occurred simultaneously at the Ohi and Takahama plants. In North Korea, June 12 has been set as the date for the nuclear summit between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un. Now, North Korea has said that it will dismantle its nuclear test site in less than two weeks. North Korea's foreign ministry said that all of the tunnels at the country's northeastern testing ground will be destroyed by explosion, and that observation and research facilities and ground-based guard units will also be removed. Kim had already revealed plans to shut down the test site by the end of May during his summit with South Korean President Moon Jae-in last month. Analysts say that while the closure of the site is important, it doesn't represent a materialist step forward to full denuclearization. A story with international implications showed up under the headline, Cannabis Cleans Up Nuclear Radiation and Toxic Chemical Waste. That sounds like a truly high-minded idea.
this story is about a steel mill city of Toronto, Italy, which is polluted with dioxin. But industrial hemp has been used to clean up deadly pollutants before. The most famous use of industrial hemp for phytoremediation of radioactivity was near the site of the deadly nuclear meltdown at Chernobyl, Ukraine. In the mid-1990s, a company named Phytotech worked with researchers and a Ukraine-based seed bank to plant thousands of hemp plants, non-psychoactive, in and around Chernobyl. No results have been reported, and no word of what can be done with the hemp so grown. And now... Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's out of week. The British government has refused to rule out placing an underground nuclear waste facility beneath protected areas such as national parks and areas of outstanding natural beauty. In response to a written question last week, one Lord Henley, Parliamentary Undersecretary for Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy, said the government is not excluding developing the proposed storage site at protected areas, though it would only be consented in such areas in exceptional circumstances where it would be in the public interest to do so. Public interest? Radioactive nuclear waste? Never! The British government is currently seeking for the future home of its geological disposal facility, which it sees as a long-term solution for most radioactive waste produced by nuclear power stations. Of course, animals, plants, and scenery don't vote. And they can't hire lobbyists because they don't have money. But that doesn't mean that Mother Nature is fair game for nuclear waste. And that is why Lord Henley... You and all you other stupid, ignorant British toffs in favor of this wrong-headed plan are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. New Zealanders fear cancer after working near a leaky U.S. nuclear reactor in Antarctica. And in India, atomic minerals have been found in Tamil Nadu beach sand samples meant for export. We'll link to both articles on our website. When it comes to nuclear, the bad news hits just keep on coming. And this past week has been a doozy. Mainstream media ballyhooed the House vote to reopen the license to Yucca Mountain and move ahead on nuclear waste dumps in West Texas as a good thing, touting bipartisan as if there aren't idiots in both political parties. That's why you've learned to count on Nuclear Hot Seat, to get into nuclear stories with facts, continuity, and context, as well as a healthy dose of skepticism. We look at things with a much deeper and more nuanced telling than you'd expect on mainstream media. We're behind the scenes, under the skin, into the heart of nuclear matters, and any other cliche you want to apply here. And we do it every week with fresh information, an unrelenting perspective, and even, when possible, humor. Does having this information each week help you figure out and understand what's going on nuke-wise? That's what we're here for. But in order to keep doing it, we need your help. And we're asking for it. 
It's help so that we can meet our expenses. If you value the kind of information Nuclear Hot Seat provides, help us out by sending a donation of any size, really any size. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red donate button. And for those of you who really want to make a big difference, but like so many of us, lack the budget, you can help us out a little at a time. On the website, we've got a big green donate button that allows you to quickly set up a recurring donation of just $5 a month. That's the same as you'd spend for a cup of coffee, and if you're in a low-rent district, maybe a little nosh. It really does make a big difference in meeting our monthly expenses to have donations we know we can count on. So please, do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat search out and share the nuclear information that helps you understand things that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know about. Whatever you can do to help, you've got my gratitude. Here's this week's featured interview. We're going to be talking with two young filmmakers who have been working on Off Country, a documentary about the victims and activists around the Trinity site in New Mexico, Rocky Flats in Colorado, and the White Sands Missile Range, also in New Mexico. I thought it would be helpful for you to first get a sense of the kind of stories they're going after and the people they've been interviewing. So let's start out with a brief clip from Off Country. My famous tagline that I developed years ago is, we were unknowing, unwilling, uncompensated, innocent, tax-paying victims in the first atomic bomb. All right, uh, well, we're at the uh, Trinity site today on one of the two days a year that it's open to the public. This is the site of the, uh, the very first detonation of a nuclear weapon on Earth, which is both special and horrifying when you think about it. And uh, so I have a Geiger counter for various hobby reasons, and uh, that's one of the fun things to do is look around, find some elevated levels, and there's because there's little bits of Trinitite everywhere still from that day. The, the fused uh, sand turned to glass from the blast. It's the day when humanity sort of rolled the dice on itself, and we can't go back to the moment before that bomb detonated. It's a very interesting part of history that everybody should at least know about and understand what came after, because we're living in it and we'll always live in it. My husband was born and raised in Almogordo, and he's the 13th member to die of cancer in his family. When he passed away, I just was convinced that this was what, what, what I needed to do. Just I just needed to do it. So I started Googling and Googling, and I found Tina Cordova and the Downwinders. And I called her up, and I told her our story about the cancer. My, my husband had cancer first in the colon. Uh, he lost part of his colon. Then he had kidney cancer, lost a kidney, and then it metastasized to his liver. And once it gets in your liver, it's terminal. So, so I got uh, four years ago. I came out here for the very first time. Didn't know anybody. I just drove from Texas out here, and with a sign. And I stood out here, and I met these wonderful people, and I learned so much more about the battle that they've been fighting. Um, you know, if if they had not passed the the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act in 1990, this would be a much harder battle for us. Uh, but because they did pass that uh, that uh, RECA bill, it's kind of I think opened the door a little bit 
and uh, uh, so you know they didn't include all the the counties in those four states up there they only just a few counties um, and you know we're trying to get that bill amended to help these people these people have never been acknowledged and since 1990 they've given the the downwinders up there in Nevada site over two billion dollars in compensation but they've never compensated these people and there were 40,000 people that live within you know 50 miles of ground zero in 1945, and even subsequent to that, even when I was a child, our lifestyle in these little towns was very, we lived very organic lifestyles, what everybody sort of aspires to today, but it was the worst thing possible because everybody had a garden. And in 1945, in July, women would have been harvesting fruit and vegetables and canning them, drying them, right, for, this, for the winter. So everything that, that we ate was pretty well grown and, and harvested. Everybody lived very organic lifestyles, and it was the worst thing they could possibly doing, be doing because the water was tainted, the soil was tainted. And in 1945, in almost all these little towns, there, were no running, there was no running water. People had cisterns where they collected water, or they pulled it right out of the ditches, the running ditches. You know, I've talked to people in Carrizozo who said, there was a pond north of town, like a holding pond, and it would fill up when it would rain, and that's where we'd go dip water out of. We would make the trip over there to bring jugs of water home, and I told him, you do realize that if, if there was particulate matter that day that got on people, in their hair, on their skin, it's unlikely that they bathed within that first even 24 hours, because I've talked to people about this as well, and they've told me, you know, we shower every day. Sometimes people shower more than once a day. Back then, because water was such a huge commodity that no one had access to easily, you know, they bathed once a week and they sometimes shared bathing water. <laughs> and so, you know, there was lots of, there were, there were lots of access points where people were exposed and the government never gave anybody a warning before or after. And we feel that New Mexico has been slighted. We, you know, we were ground zero. We feel that we were used like guinea pigs. They thought that nobody lived here, uh, but they have uh, wiped out many generations of families out here. We've had a lot of sterility, a lot of deformity, a lot of cancer in this area, and we want the, we want to be included in the RECA Act. I feel that we deserve it, and I feel that the government needs to take responsibility and recognize that they hurt a lot of people here. How many years of life have they taken away from people? If you put, every, put a, all these people that died because of the years, how many thousands of years of life have they taken away? Let's say if they take 10 years of my life, 10 years of his life, 10 years from everybody's life, how many thousands of years? The really sad thing about New Mexico is that, you know, we've read a little bit about sacrifice zones, and I really do believe New Mexico was determined to be a sacrifice zone a long time ago, probably because of the sparse population and maybe even because of the number of natives and Hispanics that live here. And, you know, they counted on us to be unsophisticated and, like I said, uneducated. and. Nobody knew what exposure to radiation meant. I, I remember in the 60s when I was a kid, you know, there was some talk about it and people were starting because of the Cold War. Everybody was sort of starting to understand what it meant. 
But there's that great story in the literature about them, the people from Los Alamos showing up at a ranch out there and the rancher comes out and says, what are you doing? Because they're in, you know, the Tyvek suits and they have a rudimentary Geiger counter. And he says, what are you doing? And he, he says, oh, we're just checking for uh, radioactivity. And he said, well, you, you won't find any here because we don't own a radio. And that's the level of understanding that people had. And then when people talk about, well, you should have just moved away, I always tell everybody, if only people understood the level of, um, and I don't want to call it poverty, because I want to sort of clarify that, but the level of ac lack of access to means to do that, I guess. And um, the fact that in Tularosa, for example, we just they just celebrated the church fiesta that's more than 200 years old. The people there have roots that extend back 130 some years before the bomb was detonated and they just think it's so it's it's so easy to just pull yourself up and move someplace that's an insane um sort of i don't know assumption that you would be able to do something like that and you know uh, i've heard a lot of the old people not that there are very many old people left unfortunately because i always say that people don't land up growing old in our communities and it's not going to end with my dad, who was a three, three, a four-year-old at the time, three or four-year-old at the time, who received a huge dose because he was tiny. It's not going to end with him dying, you know. It's going to continue through generations because of the genetic component. That was a clip from Off Country, a documentary in progress by filmmakers Taylor Dunn and Eric Stewart. I spoke with both filmmakers about this project on Monday, May 14, 2018. Taylor Dunn and Eric Stewart, welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Hello, really excited to be on the show. Thanks so much for having us. My pleasure. Let's start out with a bit about your backgrounds as filmmakers and were you activists on nuclear issues before you started this film? Sure. Um, I was involved with marching to shut down Vermont Yankee when I was living in New Hampshire in 2009. Yeah, and before moving to Colorado, I lived in Oakland. Uh, I was very active, not in the nuclear sort of issues and communities, though I was involved with, you know, Diablo Canyon, um, but mostly looking at environmental and social justice. As filmmakers, what is it that you focus on and have you always worked together or is this a rather recent collaboration between you? This is a recent collaboration. I historically have made films where I'm kind of a one woman show or one woman band. Um, and my films, this is a little, this is similar to some of my other work in that my work tends to look at landscape and identity and place and kind of dissect that intersection of those ideas. This is our first time collaborating and also my first time making a feature film. I mostly work as a multimedia artist and photographer and don't generally work in this format, you know, dealing with story and narrative. So this is a really kind of like new and exciting format and collaboration for me. How did you come together and how did you get started on Off Country? Eric and I met when we were graduate students at the University of Colorado in Boulder. We were both getting our MFAs in film and we met and started hanging out and 
I don't know, we became good friends. And I think we realized we both had act and we're just kind of taken aback by uh, nuclear issues and some things that were that were going on very close to CU Boulder. Um, we became interested in the site of Rocky Flats or the former site of the Rocky Flats factory. And we really like, cause mostly working in landscape, you know, radiation is invisible, contamination is invisible, history is invisible. And we would drive by Rocky Flats all the time. And, you know, it's a very beautiful place. And when we started kind of learning about that history and dissecting it, and not just the history, but the contemporary issues of gentrification and real estate development around that heavily contaminated area and the water and everything like that, we really became inspired by that coalescence of activism and landscape and environment. Um, and that was really kind of our introduction and it all spawned from Rocky Flats. It seems that you have quite a challenge in making, as you say, that which is invisible, visible, or at least accessible and understandable to an audience. How did you start out with the storytelling and what do you do to make this unseen menace that we are all facing, something that is tangible and can be understood through the medium of film? Well, nuclear history has always uh, really fetishized technology and has focused on technical innovation. The Manhattan Project encapsulating nuclear energy as being clean and really focusing on the technology of it. And we're focusing on people. And we bring this invisible history and these, this invisible contamination to life, so to speak, through the bodies of people and reinserting people into this narrative, focusing on their stories and their communities and relying on their voice. So we never focus on technology. We try to avoid jargon and we really rely on the first person accounts of activists and community members whose lives have been impacted and sometimes destroyed by nuclear contamination, low level, high level, mid level, focusing on people. We are making a feature film Something that we're, gonna, that we're doing with this project is we're taking all of the oral histories that we're collecting from survivors, from people who have been directly impacted um, by the nuclear industry, and we are making them all available online. So that you're, you won't hear only what we've cut together for the documentary. You'll be able to have access for the whole interview just to get the people's history out there and hopefully to put it into the historic canon. Wonderful and so important. Now for the film, you're focusing on three different areas, Rocky Flats, the White Sands Missile Range, and the Nevada Test Site, which was where the first atomic bomb ever, Trinity, was exploded. What attracted you to these other two sites and what struck you most deeply about these locations? We had mentioned that we started with Rocky Flats because we had been living very close to there. We're really taking a national perspective and we didn't want to think about Rocky Flats in a vacuum. You know, the nuclear industry is really a, a national thing from mining in the Four Corners to parts being assembled in Kansas to, you know, Savannah River to Amarillo, Texas, you know, the Pantex plant and the Panhandle and all Hanford and Washington and just like, you know, Lawrence Livermore in California just really being you know, shocked and awed at the, the sheer scale of how it all connected. And what we saw was the same story of communities becoming sick, becoming impacted, the local environment being affected, you know, across the nation, everywhere that we see the nuclear industry popping up. 
Yeah, and I think one thing that certainly attracted me to the story of the Trinity test is that it seems like um, if you read about it, it's, you know, this heroic moment celebrated in time, this first nuclear test that changed the world, you know, with Oppenheimer quoting the Bhagavad Gita and all of this. It's like it happened and then it was over and that there was no nothing after that. But I think with the Trinity test, it's just so incredible how that one test, how that day has impacted generations of people who live in the area. And I think for us, looking at the literature and kind of analyzing why some of these sites were chosen, specifically the Trinity site, it says no one lived there. And that's just so outrageous because it's a very historic area. You know, people had been living there since the 1600s. The Camino Real was going by there. So, and the native tribes before course, that, going back into prehistory. Of course, absolutely. So all of these um, different people that have been there forever, and it's a really sacred place for a lot of people. And this documentation that no one lived there, it's like, well, what do you mean by no one? And it makes me really upset, and I think Eric upset, and it was part of the driving force of this whole project. Staying with Trinity, I'm certainly aware of the way that the nuclear industry and the government manipulates our perception of these places by how they frame it. You've mentioned one in particular saying nobody lived there. What other propaganda or manipulation or soft focus on wasn't this a wonderful event did you spot at the site itself when you were able to get there? Well, they sell books, like The Day the Sun Rose Twice, which is really this kind of canon, you know, just reiterating the technology, the innovation. They sell t-shirts and stickers. They also sell breakfast burritos, which I found really um, kind of like absurd. They grill there. And the atmosphere is kind of mixed between a real humility, but also kind of this spectacular kitsch. The first time we went there, someone was actually dressed up as Robert Oppenheimer and was walking around. It attracts Geiger counter enthusiasts, which is a really interesting subculture. So there's this real mix of like kitsch propaganda alongside this kind of like humility um, about, you know, really the, the site that's really kind of shocking to think about. And was there anything there that reinforced the horror and the negative magnitude of what happened? Oh, absolutely not. I mean, that's part of what makes this so impactful is what you're not seeing. And I think this is true of um, the, the Nuclear Museum in Albuquerque, the Bradbury Museum in Los Alamos. It's you know so focused on technology and explosion pornography, that's how I think of it. And then you'll turn a corner and like way back in the corner of a museum, they'll start to talk about some of the effects, you know, whether they're downwinders, or the bombings on Japan, et cetera, but it's not part of the narrative. And certainly at the Trinity test site, when, it, when it's open, there's nothing there that alludes to the effect that that bomb had on the world in a negative way. They do that everywhere. I was at Three Mile Island when it happened. Uh, I actually was staying with a friend about one mile away, and I just returned for the 39th anniversary. And while I was there, I was struck by the fact that 
there was a lot that supported how wonderful the technology was and look at all the jobs and what it does for the economy. And when I spoke with people and said, I was back for the anniversary. Everybody, of course, knew what the anniversary was. And they would get very chatty and say, well, I was in high school and this is what happened and that was what happened. But when I asked what's happened in your family since, how is the health of your neighbors, your friends, the people you grew up with, your family members, they would all kind of swallow their tongues, look down and go sideways, like they didn't have permission to talk about the negative effects. And that's what the nuclear industry does everywhere it goes. Moving this along, in terms of the White Sands missile range, I'm less familiar with that as a location to visit. Is there any kind of institutionalized presentation of it, or is it just a space in the middle of nowhere? What drew you there, and what did you find? The Trinity test site is part of the White Sands missile range. It's more towards the north and sort of middle part of the range. Um, which is still an active testing ground. They, you know, the military uses it on a regular basis. On the southern part of White Sands is actually White Sands Don't National worry. Park um, that you can visit regularly. But the Trinity test site is only open twice a year to the public. And you have to be escorted out there with military personnel, like in a big caravan. And it's really, really far. I can't remember how many miles, but I feel like it's like 70 miles from the nearest town to the site when you drive in with the, with the caravan. It only happens twice a year. It's this big spectacle. People line up really, really early in the morning and then they drive out there. And there's this real tension between the Park Service, because the Park Service maintains that small area, and they really want it to be a monument that people can visit year-round, but that would be very impractical because it's an active proving ground where they're doing conventional weapons tests and flying training missions and stuff. And so the compromise they have is to make it open twice a year. But that tension that the Park Service is sort of in charge of kind of rebranding it as this museumified place. And it's that same rebranding that we see at places like Rocky Flats, where they call it a wildlife refuge. And they hand it over from the Department of Energy to the Fish and Wildlife Service. And so the Rocky Flats Wildlife Refuge sounds totally different than the Rocky Flats Superfund site. And this just rebranding and forgetting and whitewashing of history is this mechanism they use to make people forget. Is there still radiation at the site? Was that being found by the Geiger counters and are people warned do not take any you know, small stones or pebbles or souvenirs of this place? Yeah, there is still trinitite at the site, um, and there are signs you're not allowed to take any. But yeah, there's definitely some radiation. They just buried it like they did, you know, with the Rocky Flats plant. They just kind of buried it underground a bit and said, okay, here you go, or poured concrete over it. It's definitely something to be very careful about. I mean, I certainly, we've been to the site twice. I don't want to go back. I find it really creepy there, but... <laughs> Also, it's, you know, if you inhale, if you were to inhale a radioactive particle, I mean, it would sit in your body and it just takes one little tiny piece of a particle to cause damage. So I don't think it's worth the risk. And they say it's safe um, and they use a lot of science and a lot of jargon to talk about how safe it is. 
but it's, it's kind of unknown how much uh, radiation is there and the actual safety of visiting it is definitely a risk. And every time it rains, more trinitite comes to the surface. Okay, could you repeat what you just said? There was a little bit of a glitch on the line and, and it got wobbly there in the middle. So you were talking about, um, uh, about the site, about the Trinity site and uh, the radiation. Yeah, I mean, the government maintains that it's safe to visit and they use a lot of you know, scientific investigation to back that up but it's really unknown how much radiation is present because as Taylor said, all they really did was bulldoze it into the ground. And every time it rains, a little bit more trinitite comes to the surface. Um, and so you can detect radiation all over there, whether or not it's the cancer-causing kinds of radiation, whether or not you could inhale these particles, it's all unknown and it's definitely a risk. And one of the interesting things about the, that first atomic test is not all the plutonium in the bomb fissioned. Um, it didn't explode and it was distributed throughout the atmosphere and it's unknown where that plutonium went and it was like several pounds of plutonium. Yeah, that went unfissioned. It just went up into the atmosphere and rained back down over a large tract of land in New Mexico, possibly in Texas. They're not really sure. Stunning the things they don't bother to put in our history books. Now, with the film, you said that you are focusing on the people, the stories, the human side of things, which I applaud because that's the part that usually gets buried. We get caught up in jargon and, and engineering terms and don't focus on what this is actually doing to people. What are the groups that you are working with and what has been your process to locate your interviewees? We've been working on this for three years and it's been this really slow process of meeting people and getting them to open up. And we're really focusing on anti-nuclear and peace activists. We're very interested in direct action and you know, radical politics. And the three main groups that we've been working with is the Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center, which is this really amazing organization that started in the 70s to oppose Rocky Flats. And then we've been working with the Tula Rosa Basin Downwinders Consortium, um, and they've just been working together for the last couple decades to try to get some remuneration from the government under the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. And then the third group is the Nevada Desert Experience. I and mean, they've been really active in protesting the Nevada test site, and they're an interfaith organization. It's a lot of word of mouth. Like, we'll meet someone and they will say, oh, hey, you should talk to this person and this person and this person. And that's how we've been doing it. I mean, like Eric said, it is a slow process because it does, you know, these are really personal stories. And sometimes, you know, activists have committed trespassing or done various things that they probably don't feel comfortable just telling a complete stranger. So it, it takes some time to build trust. But I do want to say that one of the reasons why I am so invested in this project and what gets me really excited, especially because it's such a depressing issue, is the stories of the activists. I find them to be so inspiring and amazing. And, you know, it's just it's really great to meet such interesting people. Where are you in production and how soon before Off Country is able to premiere? We're actually just now getting ready to go out and shoot in Nevada again in a couple of weeks. We have shot, I would say, about 80% of the film. We're going to start editing this summer and the fall. 
And we're hoping that by spring of 2019 that we will be finished with the film. That's our hope, <laughs> or very close. With the film part, the archive and the website and everything else will be an ongoing project. The real ethical grounding of us as filmmakers is we're really invested in community media. You know, I used to help run a space called Artist Television Access in San Francisco, and we're just really dedicated to not just distributing work in a non in underground fashion, but also doing skill shares and you know sharing with people to try to get everybody more literate in producing media and getting it out there. Well, something that we're hoping to do when the film is finished is. We want to tour with it, so we would like to bring it to community centers, to peace and justice centers, to universities, show it and have a conversation about these issues and about our process, because I feel like having an opportunity to have a real conversation with people directly is the best way to get more people aware of these things. Well, it would be great if you could have the film done by March 28th of 2019, because that's the 40th anniversary of Three Mile Island. And I know there's already talk about what the events are that are going to take place there. And there's going to be plenty of room for people to say, here's my contribution. And that's a community that needs to see the modeling of what's happened elsewhere and what the activists have done about it we're really thinking about that polarity between like the Rocky Flats Wildlife Refuge versus the Rocky Flats Superfund and really trying to tease out some of those complexities inherent in American identity that connects national sacrifice zones with national parks. Yeah, and we're also very purposefully not including any footage of the atomic testing or the bombs themselves. A lot of people have sent us great archives of that footage, but we're trying to be very careful with this project. We don't want to fetishize the bomb in any way possible. So we are not including that in our film. We're just focusing on people's histories and stories and these landscapes. And we also look a lot at like roadside attractions, like throughout New Mexico, you can find Nike missiles on the side of the highway as sort of like a monument to White Sands. Um, you can find nuclear and military museums all over the place. We're really looking at the built landscape and counterpointing that with the voices of individual people. It sounds like this is going to be a wonderful contribution to our growing body of films and documents that, as I like to say on the show, put forth the nuclear story from a different perspective, meaning the one that doesn't usually get heard. If people want to follow your work and stay in touch, what are the best ways to do so? What's your website? Our website is off-country.com. Uh, we have a trailer uh, for the film on there, as well as our podcast and a bunch of stills from the film. You can also send us an email. It's offcountry at gmail.com. And if you check out our website, we're hooked into Instagram and Twitter, and we post on that when we're doing our field work. What we're trying to do is create a cross-generational archive we find that when we visit a lot of community centers and activist groups, we are not seeing a lot of the younger generations involved with this activism. So we're trying to use digital 
technology to bridge these generational gaps. Terrific. This sounds like a very important film that's going to be a lasting part of our canon of films that contradict the main line that is taken by the nuclear industry and the government. And for that, I thank you. And I also thank you both for being my guests this week on Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thank you so much. Those were the filmmakers of the documentary Off Country, Taylor Dunn and Eric Stewart. We'll have a link up to their website on our website, nuclearhotseat.com, episode number 360, and we will keep you informed as to when and how the film becomes available. Activist shout-out! A coalition of more than 50 anti-nuclear organizations has launched a new campaign designed to pressure the U.S. government to end its opposition and sign the United Nations Global Treaty to Ban Nuclear Weapons. The newly launched Treaty Compliance Campaign is targeted at gaining national support for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which was adopted by 122 nations at the United Nations in July of last year, and the signatories now stand at 127. The U.S. has so far boycotted the negotiations and actively lobbied other countries not to sign it. With that in mind, the Anti-Nuke Coalition's new campaign wants city and state governments, as well as businesses, universities, faith communities, and individuals, to comply with the treaty. Towns and cities in the U.S. cannot sign an international treaty, nor can they remove the nuclear weapons that may be stationed on their soil, since this is the sole prerogative of the U.S. government. They can, however, pass legally binding resolutions and local ordinances and statutes that prohibit companies from manufacturing and maintaining these weapons within their jurisdiction. They can divest city and state funds from these companies, and they can refuse to sign city and state contracts with these companies. Vicki Elson, co-founder of NukeBan.US Coalition, said... Our campaign is about putting pressure on the United States government and other nuclear nations to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. But it's more. We're putting pressure on the 26 companies that make nuclear weapons to realize the time has come to shift to other industries, like those that address climate change. We're working on an interview on this for Nuclear Hot Seat, but in the meantime, check out their website, nukeban.us and see what you can put together in your local community. In conjunction with this program, the city of Tacoma Park in Maryland was honored by Nobel Peace Prize winning ICANN, the International Coalition for the Abolition of Nuclear Weapons, with a Certificate of Compliance with the UN Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Tacoma Park thus becomes the first city in the United States to have declared its compliance. Not surprising, because it is the home of both Beyond Nuclear, and the Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS. If you would like to get a comparable action going in your town, wherever that may be, no matter what the size, go to nukeban.us. And an update on my book, Yes, I Glow in the Dark, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Nuclear Hot Seat. It is getting exciting out there. The front cover is designed. The first eight chapters have been tweaked and are in lockdown mode, 
and I've just received the editor's notes on the rest of the book. We are still on track for publication as both book and ebook next month, June 2018. If you'd like guaranteed notification of when pre-sale on the book begins and when it launches, make sure you've signed up for our weekly email with a link to the show. You can do it at nuclearhotseat.com. It's the big yellow box. I've talked about it elsewhere. I promise I won't bug you with anything other than the weekly news of the show and updates on the book. Did I mention I'm excited by this? It's only taken me five and a half years to write and my entire life to get to this point. You'll see what I mean. Here's today's final thought. The nuclear industry and the government that protects it keeps pretending that they know what to do with nuclear waste when all they're playing is an advanced game of NIMBY, not in my backyard. Kick the can down the road, Leave it for future generations, governments, taxpayers. Don't worry about the quality or the safety of the storage. Just let us, the nuclear industry, get out of it with our fortunes intact so we can relocate to missile silo condos or sheep stations in New Zealand. They're not storing the waste so much as finding obscure places to abandon it and hoping that nobody notices that they're poisoning the earth and destroying the future until they're safely out of it. The thing about the destruction is not an exaggeration. When our DNA is impacted as it is by radiation, the changes are permanent mutations. And nothing exists to make one believe that, like the cartoon character Peter Parker, who got bit by a radioactive spider and became Spider-Man, that our own mutations, as a result of radioactive bites, will turn out to be positive and life-preserving. The impact on the first generation of people who have been exposed to nuclear radiation for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years is only now being suspected, sussed out by community members, activists, and curious medical professionals who want to know WTF is happening to cause so many cases and clusters of rare cancers that aren't so rare anymore. People have died, are dying, Children are being born with life-threatening conditions and mutations, and they're dying too. I look at the nuclear industry and its government apologists and think, who are these people who think it's okay to rip apart the fabric of life in order to make another and a bigger buck? What devil do they worship? To whom did they sell their souls? How did they abdicate their empathy? Their compassion, their sense of belonging to the human race in all of its complexity. What happened to them? And when did it happen that severed them so completely from humanity, and so they chose instead to destroy others in the name of wealth and power? Or is this the way it's always been? And some of us have just been stubbornly naive to think that common sense, logic, love of life, and respect for others is really the way it's supposed to be. If there is a devil, I'm beginning to think that its name is nuclear. Or maybe the devil is the love of money and nuclear is its ultimate weapon. Either way, let's just say this has not been a good week. To be continued. 
This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, May 15, 2018. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, miningawareness.wordpress.com, Beyond Nuclear, Nuclear Information and Resource Service, or NEARS, Bologna.org, NoNuclearWaste.org, NukeWatch.com, NHKWorld, Asahi.com, EcoNewsMedia.org, Greenpeace, HuffingtonPost.com, Stuff.co.nz, TheConversation.com, ICANW.org, CommonDreams.org, The Soul Dead Cubicle Drones, who grind out press releases for World Nuclear News, the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, and for our audio clip from the film Off Country. Here is Taylor Dunn to give you the credits. Off Country is produced by Taylor Dunn, Eric Stewart, and Nancy Wolf. Special thanks to Tina Cordova and the Tularosa Basin Downwinders Consortium. Additional audio recorded by Kurt Heiner, Sarah Biagini, and Eric Coombs. Thanks for that, Taylor. And now a big shout out to the Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world. 123 countries on six continents and counting. And we're coming up on our annual audit, so who knows who else will show up. Plus a big schmushy hug to everyone who's listening on our growing network of broadcast stations around the U.S. You, all of you who listen, are the ones who show your love for life on this planet by being the kick-ass defenders of nuclear truth and supporters of atomic awareness that you are. Thank you so much for visiting the Facebook Nuclear Hot Seat page. Things are heating up there. If you haven't stopped by yet, come on down and check it out. Click like, click follow, post there, share there. Let's get some dialogue going. And you can find all of our back episodes, all 359 of them, I can't believe it, at NuclearHotSeat.com. If you add slash blog to the URL, you'll be able to scan 10 episodes at a time, or you can check by date. Theme music to Nuclear Hot Seat, written by me, sung by Marilee Weber, accompaniment by John Barnard, recorded at Winslow Court Studio in Hollywood. If you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to send a donation of any size to nuclearhotseat.com. We really appreciate your support. This show is copyright 2018. Libby, Halevi, and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that out of sight is not out of mind or out of danger when it comes to radioactive nuclear waste. There you go. You have just had your nuclear wake-up call. So don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.